0: you would uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel and the fifth chapter. Well, at least that'll be our starting point today. Um, So we'll uh, begin there. Um, We began a series last Sunday, not like our usual series. It's uh, usually we work through books of the Bible and that's a good habit, but we're occasionally we'll take a a, a break from that and, and engage the series more thematically. Um, I don't think less biblically, at least certainly that's my goal, not to be less biblically, but, but more thematically. And, and so this series is called The Church, A Spiritual Community. Occasionally it's good to pause and gather all this biblical knowledge we may gain over a course of time, but stop and kind of condense some things and talk about how it applies and what does it mean. And that's more of what this series is about. Uh, the subtitle for this message, the second in the series, is The Church on a Journey. And if you would, uh, join me. In prayer, um, as we pursue God's word. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we come with our hearts bowed before you. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to understand. Lord, enable the, these words by your spirit to enliven us, to give us faith, hope, love, to transform us into the image of your Son, Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Pilgrim's Progress uh, by John Bunyan uh, is a spiritual allegory of the Christian life. Most are only familiar with part one, which tells of Christian, that's the character's name, of course, and he represents Christians, and um, his journey to Celestial City. And and it's a hymn against the world, so to speak, uh, as He travels to the celestial city, or heaven, uh, with two primary companions, faithful and hopeful. A fair critique, I think, uh, of the, the, the book is that it paints the Christian life as a fairly individualistic journey. It's a Christian making his way to the celestial city. Bunyan was evidently aware of this weakness himself, because he actually wrote a part two which I was completely unaware of. And in part two, he tells the journey of Christian's wife, Christiana, and their children to Celestial City. I actually only found the second part when I was just kind of looking back up a summary of part one because I had this critique in mind of how individualistic it painted the Christian life. And in the review and summary that I was reading, it said, but part two, and what part two? I never saw part two. Now it's partly because... Most of the versions I read were the kids' versions that had illustrations and were the abbreviated and so on. I mean, I, just for my kids' sake. That's, that's why I, I did that. And, and, so, and not all the published versions have part two, only a few of them. So, so part two I was excited to learn about, but that was only this week. And so I quickly went and read some summaries of part two and some reviews on part two to discover that, that Bunyan must have understood this weakness because in part two, uh, Christiana is not going alone. She has her four sons with her. A lady named Mercy joins her. Soon they're joined by Greatheart, who serves as her guide. By the time they reach the river to cross to the heavenly city at the end of the book, they are a large company. There are the lame, the struggling, the valiant in their ranks. They are a community. They are uh, talking together, praying together, singing together. Now, this, I propose, paints the biblical picture of the journey that is missing in the typical American concept of following Jesus. Even most devout Christians have a Pilgrim's Progress Part 1 paradigm of what the Christian walk is about. But we need to have a Pilgrim's Progress Part 2 paradigm, understanding, view of what following Jesus is all about. When Christ calls us to follow Him... We're set on a journey. But if we travel alone, we will not survive. Rather, Christ calls us to to join to a company of people on a pilgrimage, a journey to another place. It's, It's a caravan, a group of travelers journeying together for safety as they pass through deserts, hostile territory, and the like. The caravan that I speak of is the church. We must not travel alone. We must stay connected to the church, this caravan, this spiritual community. There are plenty of other caravans and you may prefer their community policies. Honestly, they may be much better for your likes and dislikes. But they're not going to the same place and they do not provide the same protection no matter what they might claim. Last week, we... We talked about who we, the church, are. Every local church that's a gospel-centered, gospel-born local church. And there are a number of them in this city, a number of them in the, in the two-county area. We happen to be one of them. We talked about who we are, believers joined together, who God made you to be when you became a Christian. Who we are affects what we do, but only if we know who we are, and what it means to be who we are. Last week, we really focused mostly on who we are. This week, we're going to focus on more on what does it mean to be who we are. What does that mean for us? We explored what it means to be a living stone, joined two other living stones, the, the, other, the, the living stone, Jesus, and then therefore joined to one another to become a spiritual house in which God lives. What does Scripture mean? That we are the temple of the living God. What are the implications? When we think of God's dwelling place, we usually think of a stationary building, like a temple. We'd do better, maybe, to understand it it more as a motorhome than a mansion. Okay, because when God set up His dwelling place, He didn't first set up a temple. That was really man's idea. God's idea was a tabernacle. Because they were a people on the move. So it was always ready to go with them. We're not settlers. We're pilgrims. But let me be very clear. American Christianity is is full of individual pilgrims who never settle into a community of God's people. So in that sense, they're not settlers either. But they're happily settled into this world, living their lives as they want to. What Christ has called us to be What Christ called, what, what he made us for is to be a people who never settle in this world, but are settled into the pilgrim community called the church. Now, it's a bit of an oxymoron. How can you be settled into a pilgrim community, a moving community? But that's who we're to be settled with. What does it mean to be settled into this pilgrim community, the church? Where are we going? What should we expect? Why do we need a spiritual community? Well, let's start first with the community compact. That's the first thing we're going to look at today. Since it's so prevalent in Scripture and widely accepted, I'm not going to take the time to lay out a thorough biblical argument for the fact that the church is a traveling community. However, allow me to mention a few things for those to whom it might be a new idea, maybe less familiar to you. So, the text we examined last week, 1 Peter chapter 2, how we're uh, 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 living stones being joined together, a living house which God dwells. It goes on in verse 9 to describe the church with the same language. You're a royal priesthood, chosen generation, a holy nation. The same language that's used in Exodus chapter 19 at the foot of Mount Sinai to describe the people of Israel. When? When, right after coming out of Egypt, Right after they cross through the Red Sea, they arrive there ready to start the journey through the wilderness to get to the promised land, to conquer the promised land, to dwell in the promised land, and to eventually arrive at the city that has a builder and foundation, which is God alone, the heavenly city. I mean, that's where they were. And what does God do when when they uh, arrive there? He, He equips them for the journey that is ahead. Well, likewise, Peter describes us in that same language. Why? Because we too have a journey ahead. The book of Hebrews strongly implies throughout the entire book that we, the church, are on a journey. And then in chapters 11, through the end of the book, it becomes explicit that we are on a journey. The gospel calls us to do what? To follow Jesus. This means we're going somewhere. He's going somewhere. If we're going to follow him, we better be moving, right? Right? It goes by Levi's tax booth, and what does he do? Does he stop and say, hey, let's just sit here a while, and let's talk. Let me help you out. No, follow me. Well, either Levi gets up and starts moving, or he's going to miss out. It requires action because Jesus keeps going. Follow me. We're called to follow Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke paint a picture uh, uh, of Jesus traveling toward a destination and inviting people to fall in behind him. Matthew's gospel makes it explicit that the community on that journey is the church. In Matthew's gospel, it is immediately after the announcement that Jesus is building his church that the journey is first announced. There also, the disciples in his gospel are always called in pairs of two. Peter and Andrew, James and John, two blind men, two demoniacs, and again, two blind men. Discipleship in the church is carried out just between the two of us. But if that doesn't work, we bring one or two others along. And where two agree, on earth is touching anything. You're beginning to see the point. Matthew is talking about discipleship in terms of two. Why? Because Matthew is emphasizing the communal aspect of following Jesus. There's no magic in the number two. It just drives home the point that it's never one. It's always more than one. That's the issue that's involved. At the start of Matthew's gospel, Jesus sets out the rules of the road, the the travel compact, if you will, the travel covenant. Everybody going on the journey, these are the rules we agree to. This is what will be the driving ethic of our community as we travel and make our way there. We commonly refer to that travel compact as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It defines the agreed upon terms, the ethics of this traveling community. It's the gospel's counterpart to the Sinai Covenant. So let's read beginning in Matthew 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. As we just said a moment ago, when God delivered the, the, the Israel out of Egypt... Out of slavery there, just after they've gone through the Red Sea, water on both sides, a cloud above, water everywhere. Paul calls that a baptism. The first stop before the journey to the promised land would begin, Sinai. There God calls Moses up onto the mountain, dictates his law to Moses. And then he goes down to the people, covers his face with the veil, and tells the people the law of God. This, this law that he dictates to them, we call it the Mosaic Covenant, was to be the covenant for that community as it traveled through the wilderness, as it conquered the land, as it, they made their way to their final destination, the heavenly city. In Matthew, just after Jesus go, goes through the water of baptism, in chap, the end of chapter 3, he passes the test of the wilderness, which Israel had failed in chapter 4 of Matthew. When the crowds first begin to gather to him, he too goes up on a mountain. Before he invites them to join him in the journey, he goes up on a mountain. And then he calls his disciples to him. Note the difference. Moses goes up, receives the law from God, comes back down and gives it to the people. But Jesus goes up and then he invites his disciples to come up the mountain to him and he gives them the law. He's not taking the role of Moses. He's taking the role of Yahweh in giving the law to his people. The disciples all came to receive his law directly. They, they go up rather than waiting at the bottom. Jesus does not say, the, the Lord says, but he says, you heard that Moses said, but I say. And when he says anything, it trumps whatever Moses said. The Sermon on the Mount represents the travel compact, the travel covenant, if you will, for this new community as we follow Jesus to Jerusalem, the earthly one where crucifixion occurs, and then on to the heavenly Jerusalem where reigning with Christ happens. It lays, lays out the agreed-upon ethics of this traveling community, the church, our caravan, if you will. Well, we're a community with a different value system. We're community with a different value system. That's the first thing we see when we arrive at the Sermon on the Mount. In verses 3 through 12, we read the following, and these are familiar verses, but let me highlight some things. Verse 3: Blessed are the poor in spirit. Four, blessed are those who mourn. Five, blessed are the meek. Six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness or or righteousness. Seven, blessed are the merciful. Eight, blessed are the pure in heart. Nine, blessed are the peacemakers. Ten, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Eleven, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, now, those that are called blessed by Jesus in these verses are the polar opposite of what the world calls blessed. I mean, when you see somebody wearing a t-shirt, that kind of in that cursive print, little exclamation point, blessed! Right? You've seen it? Or maybe it's their post on their Facebook, you know, status. Blessed! You don't think to yourself, oh, they must really be mourning right now. You know, oh, they're really, really poor in spirit at the moment. That, that, that's not what that message sends to us. But Jesus is saying, this is blessed. The, the, the poor, the mourning, the, those in need of justice, those are the blessed. The world says blessed are the rich, the proud, the confident, the happy, the revelers, the rich, the powerful, the ones who make things happen, not the ones to whom things happen. No, blessed are the victorious, the coy, the one who wins in court, the famous, and the adored. That's what the world tells us. Jesus is declaring up front that this community has a different value system than the world. We may drive cars or donkeys, as the case may be. We may live in houses or huts, but what we call blessed and why we call it blessed is not only different from the world, though they drive cars and live in houses or huts or whatever it is. It's not only different from the world, but it's so radically opposite of the world's way of thinking that the word opposite Hardly suffices. We call it polar opposite, like the North and the South Pole. I and mean, there's, they may look a lot the same. They're both cold, they both have ice, they, but they're as far apart as they could possibly be. And so, while our lives at times may look much like the world, if we are functioning with the value system that Jesus lays out, if we are, then what we are doing and being as a community as, as opposite of the world as it could possibly be in their form of community. It may intersect at points, it may look the same at times, but it is as polar opposite as possible. We are, yes, a community with a different value system, but we're a community bound by the law of love. And, and by the way, even there, we, we don't define love the same. The world would agree, hey, yes, the law of love, love one another. But John tells us in his letter that the only way we even know what love is is Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The revelation of God through Jesus Christ is the only way we can actually even know what love is. So our idea of being bound by the law of love is entirely different than the world could possibly even conceive of. It's a a whole other kind of thing. Even though at times it will look much the same. Jesus then proceeds to recast the law in Matthew 5, uh, beginning in verse 21 and on through the end of that chapter, in in terms of the law of love. Love from the heart as as, as the only means of fulfilling the law. Do not murder becomes, do not even become angry in your heart or mutter that the guy in front of you driving is a fool. But but to reconcile, even as you're on your way to court. Do not break an oath becomes, make every word you say as good as an oath. it calls us to risking our possessions and all of our dealings with others as if the others were far more important than our possessions. Even our garments are not as important as the person standing before us. It calls us to do all of this even for our enemies. That just seems so extreme. And then this leads to talk in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, about how this community, in this community, we, we cannot do any of this, not even loving our neighbor, motivated by how we might appear to somebody else. We have to have a completely different motivation. What others think of us can't be what drives us in any way, shape, or form. It has to be pleasing our Heavenly Father. And that's not an others-don't-matter attitude. That's clear from the context. Sometimes people have that, yeah, I don't care what people think, but it's not the right kind of, I don't care what people think. It's the wrong kind. In fact, we're to pray for one another, it goes on to describe, for, for the ability to live this way. The, the prayer that, that Jesus teaches assumes that none of us can accomplish any of this living without our praying for one another. Our praying that the Lord would forgive us where we fail, that he would empower us to walk it out. Not just forgive me, but forgive you. Empower me, yes, but empower you. We have to be praying for one another. We're, we're, on, we're, we're a community with a different value system. We're a community bound by the law of love, but we're on a journey to a different destination. In chapter 6, verses 19, through the end of that chapter, there Jesus talks about what everyone in the world is after. Good food, clothing, riches. We store it away. We, we keep it from others we worry about getting more of it constantly. He, he tells us that it can't be this way in this community. It can't be this way. It, it can't be this way. That's what the pagan community is like. Jesus then tells them what we are to be seeking. What our priority is to be. And Beginning in verse 32, it says, For the pagans run after all these things and, get this, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We can't even, we can't even use the excuse that we need them. Well, yeah, I'm not seeking after riches. I just, I'm just, just what I need. Yeah, great, but that's not what you're allowed to seek first. You seek first the justice of God, the reign of God, the rule of God in this world. You, you seek first that it would be done in earth as it is in heaven. First, period. Now, these things you need—they'll be added, but you can't seek them first. You now, is he serious? Well, we're going to find out just how serious he is in a moment. But yeah, he's serious. We're not to be oriented around the acquisition of all these things, though the Father knows we need them. We still can't be at oriented around their acquisition, even our needs. No. Our travel compact, our travel covenant, the the rule of the road, so to speak, is that we are seeking the rule of God, his justice, his righteousness. That's what we agree from the outset of the journey. That's going to guide how we live together. And when we find ourselves living in conflict to that, then we have the right to talk to one another about how we're living in conflict to that rule, that guideline, that ethic that Christ has laid out for the community. I mean, this this is radically different than the food, drink, and necessities of life that the world seeks mentality. In fact, it's so radical that we too, the church, often fail to see just how much our own lives are controlled by this pagan orientation to the treasures of this world. But the Lord gives us something to bring on the journey that is a constant reminder of this value system. He, he gives us something to take along with us on the journey, and it'll, it'll always remind us, it'll always remind us of this value system. It's called a cross. And that leads us to the section Community Misconceptions and Missteps, Matthew chapter 16. Right after Jesus introduces the fact that he is going to build his church, Peter. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, on that truth, Peter. I'm going to build my church. And as soon as he introduces what he's about building this community, he tells those of the nucleus of this new community, oh, and by the way, we're going somewhere. We're traveling. Let's read about it. Beginning in verse 21. From that time on, what time? Right after he tells them that he's going to build his church. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross, get behind me, and follow me. And follow me. See, that's the deal. I'm going somewhere. It's a cross. And if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to pick up your cross, and you've got to follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, for me, will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So, chapters 5 through 7, Jesus lays out the ethic of the community, this covenant agreement, what we agree to on the journey. And right before they're getting ready to go on the journey, in that brief paragraph that I just read in Matthew 16, Jesus basically summarizes everything he said in the Sermon on the Mount. There isn't really anything much that you can find in the Sermon on the Mount that can't come under what is just said there about what it means to follow Jesus. Now, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if up to this point Peter wasn't paying attention when Jesus was talking about this new value system at the Sermon on the Mount time. Maybe maybe he wasn't paying attention. Maybe he was distracted and kind of answering messages on his cell phone. I don't know. But, Maybe, maybe he just assumed that Jesus wasn't serious. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've met people that didn't think Jesus was serious in the Sermon on the Mount. Because, I mean, let's face it. There are a lot of things he says in there that it's kind of hard to take him seriously. Like, really? He wants me to, like, lend to those I can't expect repayment from? I mean, does he understand that that would actually hurt? I mean, is, is he? I need that. I mean, how serious is he? Peter maybe maybe Peter didn't think he was serious. I don't know but but Jesus takes this opportunity as you're about to set on the journey to clarify just how serious he is about it. Oh, by the way guys, there's something you must carry with you when you're going to if you're going to follow me as I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Oh yes, Jesus, my bathing suit for the beach and and flip-flops, my a GoPro would be really helpful, some sunscreen and definitely some 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 good shades, right, Jesus? No, Peter, no. A cross an implement of death for the sake of others and, and by the way where would you get the idea that you were going on vacation uh, can the rest of me show rest of you show me your bags what what do you got in your what did you pack oh no uh uh-uh. uh mm, oh no. mm no sorry no no it's not it's not going to do guys y- you all packed for the beach this plane lands in the arctic circle oh well you'll just have to stay really close to each other to stay warm You have to value each other more than your shades, your flip-flops, your designer swimsuits. After all, none of those will do you any good here. (laughs) Yeah. All of those are useless where we're going, so follow me. Crosses were hideous reminders of injustice and dying, of Roman oppression, of the brokenness of this world. Peter's idea of following Jesus is immediately upended. But are we we a lot different? Are we really much different ourselves? Larry Crabb may sum it up well when he writes, We moderns tend to think of our spiritual journey as a God-directed adventure until something goes seriously wrong or until certain problems persist past the time we give God to take them away. Then we think about solving the problems more than about finding God in the midst of them. We focus more on using God to improve our lives than on worshiping him in any way and, or in any and every circumstance. We think more about pathology, in other words, what can be fixed, than about the journey that we're on. See, we, we, don't, we don't think, at least deep down it's hard to think this way, and it takes constant Holy Spirit work to ever get To where we're in this place. We we don't think blessed are those who mourn when we're mourning. Not when we're mourning. No, no. Uh, When we're mourning, we tend to think, why doesn't God love me anymore? Why why has God turned his back, right? Because we don't want to grieve. We don't think we should have to grieve. And blessed are those who mourn is not the thing that comes to the top of our mind. Honestly, I, I can't speak for you. I can speak for me, and I'm suspecting I'm speaking for a number of the people that I've talked to that were mourning. And maybe you've had the same experience. Maybe not. Maybe yours isn't at all like mine, but I'm thinking maybe you know somebody who's had that same experience. See, we don't think blessed are those who mourn when others are mourning either. We think, how can I help them see the bright side so that they stop mourning? And we try to say quaint little things like it's, you know, they're better now or they're not in any more pain. We, we say all sorts of things, right, to keep them from mourning, or at least we think, right, to fix them. Because why? We, we're interested in pathology, not in how God has called us to journey together to this place and encourage one another, and so, so we, we start trying to fix the mourning. Maybe because we don't think that God will comfort them, or at least not soon enough in our thinking, See, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. is isn't satisfactory to our way of thinking. Maybe we don't think that waiting for that comfort that God will bring has significant value for them, despite the numerous evidences in Scripture that it does have significant value for them. Again, I don't know how you think. I'm just sharing from my own experience. We don't want crosses. Now, we'll willingly pick one up once in a while so long as no one has to... Actually carry it for too long, especially us. Don't, don't expect me to carry it for like a long, like the, the whole marathon. No, no, no. Someone comes to us and tells us how they are sick and immediately we begin checking off our list. Have you seen a doctor? Have you been prayed for? What's your diet like? Are you getting enough sleep? We keep going until we finally pull out the last straw. Is there, is there some unconfessed sin in your life? I mean, if they've answered all the other ones right and they're still sick. There's got to be some unconfessed sin. Why? Because the assumption is, if everything's going right, you can't be sick. And so we set out to fix them. We're we're a whole lot like Job's friends. A whole lot like his friends. Got to find the cause of the problem. We got to fix it. Our, our, our reflex response may expose a deeper issue. I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with questions. I mean, what is your diet like? Are you getting enough sleep? That's a legitimate question, right? But it reveals, if, if it's absent the other questions, it reveals that our seeking first is in the wrong place. We're, we're all about the things of this world in those questions. Um, We should be aware none of us, well, all of us aren't doctors. When people are sick, we suddenly try to become doctors and physicians, you know, try to figure out what's wrong. We're going to cure them because we read something on the Internet and all that. But our heart, our motivation is we want them well. But it reveals a problem because rarely, if ever, do we stop to ask the question, how are we to draw close to God in the midst of this? How are we to cling to God through this? How can we suffer in this in a way that benefits others? What is God at work doing in my soul in the midst of this suffering? Not my will, but yours be done is usually only used as a fine print clause for limiting our liability when we pray for somebody, so we tack it on to the end of that prayer. It's not a passionate desire of our hearts that enables us to get up from that prayer and choose the cross over what we want. But it was for Jesus. When he got done praying, not my will but yours be done, he got up and decided to lay down what he wanted and choose the cross, the Father's will. The phone rings and the brother or sister from our community group is on the other end. You've known them and their spouse for several years, gone to dinner together, uh, even gave a baby shower for their first child. But now one of them tells you that their spouse treats them in in demeaning ways and recently even started throwing the D word in during their arguments. We begin asking all the probing questions. Have you talked to one of the pastors? Have you, even, uh, have you considered counseling? Do you think he or she is cheating on you? How are things going in the bedroom? Are you holding any unforgiveness against them? And there's nothing wrong with any of those questions. But what's missing? What's absent reveals a complete swing and a miss. All of these are oriented around what is wrong and how do we fix it? They're all good and natural instincts. Your father knows that you need these things, kinds of instincts. Change the language up, though, and every unbeliever that we know would ask the same questions. Where are the questions about seeking first the rule of God and his righteousness? We are called to be a spiritual community. Community, friendship, caring. That... They don't jump to that next level of relationship and become spiritual community, spiritual friendship, spiritual caring, until we, by the Spirit's grace, enter into that place, onto that journey, which has the reign of God as its first pursuit. The Lord will take care of all these other things, but we must seek this one first, the reign of God. We aren't called to be a community of fixers but a community keeping each other warm on the journey through, the pres- through presence and prayer, spiritual encouragement, and even spiritual direction. But we're not called to be a community of fixers. When somebody is grieving, when somebody is, is mourning, our job isn't to fix them, but is to mourn with them. We don't have to cheer them up. We can cry with them. Once we know the community compact, more aware of the community misconceptions and missteps, then we're ready for community participation. What does it look like? What does this community participation look like? Well, first, let's talk about the church as an assembly. It might help to clarify something about the church before going further. I've said many times, maybe you've said, the church isn't a building, the church isn't a meeting, the church isn't this or that or the other, but the church is the people. But it's the middle one that I think might be misleading. The church isn't a meeting. That can be misleading. If if by saying the church isn't a meeting, we mean that it isn't merely an event that occurs at 8.30 or 11 or Wednesday night at 7 o'clock or whatever it might be, but doesn't exist the rest of the week, then that is a correct statement. If, however, we mean that what the church is at its very core has nothing to do with that meeting, then we are greatly mistaken. We're greatly mistaken. You see, in English, we miss the fact that the word translated church, had we been reading it as a Gentile Christian in Ephesus, in one of Paul's letters, for instance, is the same word that we would use for assembly or meeting. It's the same word in our Greek Old Testament for the assembly or congregation of Israel in the wilderness. The, the church is the congregation, it is the assembly, it is the meeting of the saints. It'd be kind of like saying, well, the church isn't a church, or a meeting isn't a meeting, or an assembly isn't an assembly. You can't just say the church isn't a meeting without some clarification of what we mean by that. Because it's, it is. It is the gathering, the assembly. Now, it's more than that because the assembly of Israel going through the wilderness, they assembled regularly, yes. They stayed assembled as they went through the the wilderness. But it wasn't just the moments of the assembly that they were still the assembly in the wilderness. You follow me? They still remained that, and there's so much that grew out of that. This makes the idea of being part of some kind of universal congregation, church, but not part of a local congregation, a non-sequitur. You can't be part of an assembly without assembling. You can't say, well, I'm a part of the spiritual congregation, but I never congregate. I'm a part of the spiritual assembly, but I don't actually assemble. What kind of sense does that make? So it's vital that we keep these things clear, what God is speaking of when he speaks of the church. Each gospel-founded local church is a congregation on a journey, an assembly in the wilderness of this world, if you will. The church is a spiritual community. What makes it spiritual? Well, I think one of the key things is that it has a different value system. What we seek first, the kingdom of God, his rule, that makes it spiritual in the little s sense of the word. And that's only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the big S in in our hearts and lives. But what makes the church a community? That's what makes it spiritual, but what makes it a community? That same Holy Spirit empowers us to speak to one another, to encourage one another, to engage one another in life. We see this in Hebrews, uh, which the book of Hebrews is, a, is really a message framed around the whole idea of this journey. In and, and <clears throat> chapter uh, 10, verses 24 through twenty and 25, let us consider how we may spur one another uh, on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So, consider. Do you consider when you come to worship, do you stop and actually consider how you may spur one another on toward love and good deeds? When you engage somebody during the week, when you arrive at community, do you stop on your way and consider in your mind how? How, Lord, do I encourage my brother or sister? We're called to be spiritual companions of each other. That involves a level of spiritual direction in in our lives. In chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 7, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Then in verse 17, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. See, God gives us leaders in the journey. The Spirit uses him to offer spiritual direction, reminding us which way we are going, calling us to faith. A genuine spiritual community has leaders. It isn't just a do-as-you-please kind of place any more than a group of kids makes a family. No, there has to be parental authority in order for there to be a family. Some, some guardian responsible in order for there to be a family has to be there. See, so we, we can't just, oh yeah just me and a couple of friends, we get together, we have a little Bible study, we're a church. Well, is there any spiritual authority there? If there's not, then isn't a church. It may be a wonderful thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It may be a fantastic thing. But not everything good is the church. Not everything that's a part and parcel of a church is a church. It's important that we recognize that. We see it in the letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 3, verse 16, this this. Relational community, this encouraging one another. It says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So this verse grows out of chapter 1, verse 28, where Paul says that he preached Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom... Now, in 3.16, the gathered community is to take that gospel, Christ, which is preached, let it dwell among them richly, that message, so that they can do the same thing one to another. Spiritual community is a description of how we are actually called to live on this journey. How we're actually called to live on this journey. Larry Crabb paints a picture of what the church as a spiritual community looks like. He says, it's time to build the church. A community of people who take refuge in God and encourage each other to never flee to another source of help. A community of folks who know the only way to live in this world is to focus on the spiritual life, our life with God and others. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it. Our impact on the world is at stake. All this means that we need to do, as one author puts it, turn our chairs toward each other. You see, when we gather, if we're going to be a true spiritual community, there is that sense in which we are all facing the same direction, Godward, worshiping him. He is the one audience that that we give praise and worship to. But when we gather to worship, if we're going to be a community, there's an aspect of our gathering, our worship, which involves listening to God and one another, and then speaking to God and one another. In order to accomplish the one another part, we need to... Turn our chairs, at least attitudinally, toward each other. I'm not talking about breaking down the set and turning toward each other. But in our hearts, just like in our hearts we are all turned toward God, in our hearts there's a space and a time we have to stop and turn our chairs toward each other. Imagine if you turned your chair to, the, to the, your left and, and then you turned your chair to your right. How that would change your perspective on what's going on in the service. You begin to think of that other person and what God... What needs they have before the Lord. Far too often we we arrive at the gathered assembly as an individual. We remain individuals throughout the gathered assembly and then we go home as individuals. And we haven't actually gathered with anybody, though we did. (laughs) Because we never turned our chair toward one another, we never considered our brother or sister. We need to face each other, so to speak, listen to each other, appropriately speak to each other. We are a traveling community. We carry a cross. The cross defines the kind of love that we are to have, the ethic of the kingdom, this dying-to-self ethic. The community is an essential component of our journey through the dangerous terrain of this world. We all have something that we must contribute to the community, and we all have something that we need from the community. We need to learn the community compact. Beware of the misconceptions and missteps which we're all prone to. And we must plunge in and participate in the community. We must engage by the Spirit in the community with one another. We must. It's necessary. America teaches us that we need to be self-made people. But the truth is, whatever we can make by ourselves has no value in the kingdom of heaven. God is redeeming a people for himself, not superheroes. He's redeeming a people for himself. And you and I have the opportunity to be a part of that people. There's only one way to become a part of this community. You have to be a follower of Jesus. It's not optional to be a part of the community without being a follower of Jesus. You can't like, I don't really want to follow Jesus, but I love the community. I'm going to be a part. No, you can attend, you can come, you can listen. But until you become a follower of Jesus, you can't really engage and become a part of the spiritual community. Nor can you be a follower of Jesus without being a part of the traveling community, a gathering of other followers. they, They go together. They're joined at the hip. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father. Take these truths and work them in our souls. Stir us, engage us. The things that you've revealed to us that need changing, continue to work on them and conform us to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.